the thing that makes me feel good about doing things like this is hearing people say the experiences that they went through and showing acceptance to what they did. They acknowledging, hey, this happened and I understand this, but because of that, I was able to grow because that's a part of growth. The acknowledgement of ignorance begins knowledge. So just the fact that you were able to go through something like that and then able to reflect and then grow from it. I wish we could see more of that in general. That was Matthew Bishop talking about growth through recognizing one's faults. And we'll get back to his ideas in a moment. When Rebecca and I started podcasting as Bar Crawl Radio, we had no other desire than to talk to interesting people at our favorite bars. But many have told us that podcasts are supposed to be about something, have a focus, and we are about anything we're interested in, whatever catches our attention. So, here's what caught my attention. I've been reading White Fragility by Robin DeAngelo, a white academic in whiteness studies, and it has smacked me in my white gut. The ugliness of police brutality aimed at black Americans cannot be ignored and cannot be papered over with meager policy changes. We have to recognize the ugly fact that racism is at the core of this country, is the ground from which arises white rage against dark skin. Rebecca and I feel it is important that we develop conversations about the enormous issues of white privilege and the near impossibility of white citizens to see the true nature of this country as racist. In order to have full disclosure, Rebecca and I are older white people, and to start this conversation on racism in the United States, we are talking with two young black people. Kendra Claiborne is a software developer from Queens, New York. She has a Bachelor's of Engineering in Computer Science. Presently, Kendra works at Box, a very large new company that does something, but I am not sure what that is. We do know that at Box, Kendra is working to raise awareness of the diversity and inclusion issues in tech. She is a leader for the Black Excellence Network at Box, where she organizes and facilitates events to celebrate black excellence and assists in creating a space for black employees to discuss issues within the black community in tech and society. I have known Matthew Bishop since he was a student in a media studies class I taught at John Jay College. His expertise in audio was pivotal in my getting started in podcasting. Matthew has a Bachelor of Science in Fire Science and is now working in IT. He's also a hip-hop musician and producer who has published albums and recently released three singles which seem to reflect where our society is in the summer of 2020. Stressed and Blessed, Breaking Plates, and Here It Goes. And so with that longish intro, here we go. I want to uh, welcome Matthew Bishop and Kendra Claiborne to uh, Bar Crow Radio for our our first discussion. Uh, we hope it's going to be uh, many discussions about um, 
the uh, racist environment in which this we live in in this country. Matthew, how you doing? You and I uh, introduced podcasting at John Jay College several years ago. It's getting on a while ago. With a weekly show that we put on called WJJCRH, the John Jay Community Hour. And that was a lot of fun. And uh, I, I look back on it. I think we, we did some good work there. Yeah, I, I would definitely second that. Uh, I remember how we started with it, and I remember seeing it grow mm-hmm. weekly. Like, every week it felt like, oh, there's a little bit more growth, and then you even uh, show me some things with the mix. I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot you could do something like that, or I didn't know you could do something like that. So Yeah, but I always was- I always kind of turn to you to say, you know, Matthew, am I, am I doing it right or something went wrong? You kind of figured it out. So uh, you really got me started in – in this, and I'm doing it now a lot. I'm doing a lot of podcasting. I really, really enjoy it, um, and I'm trying to get you back into it too. Um, may, maybe, maybe you know, get get your own kind of podcast going because I think you have a lot to say. You also started uh, Matthew a club at John Jay. Shut up and listen. I love that title. Yeah, <laughs> I remember when <laughs> you first you. came came to my office. You said, "I'm thinking of starting a student club called Shut Up and Listen." I went. Maybe you should reconsider the title, but it was perfect. And then you came home and told me, and I said, I like it. Yeah, it was a perfect title <laughs> for what it was. And uh, it was basically a spoken word organization for students. What I found so amazing, it was totally, totally inviting. It invited everybody in. Um, and, and everyone was accepted, and everyone's words were accepted. And I congratulate you on that. I don't know, I don't know where it is now. Yeah, actually, I heard it doesn't exist anymore. Um, oh, shoot. Too bad. We had two cycle presidents after me. Mm-hmm. Uh, then after that, uh, I guess they were struggling to uh, find somebody to, you know, keep the legacy going with the club. I guess people are either going towards the music club mm-hmm. or uh, the other, like, dramatic clubs instead of, like, doing the open mic club, which was shut up and listen. I think a lot of it had to do with your energy that you brought to it. And as long as you were there, that mature energy that uh, is not always there in student clubs. And I met Kendra at a concert that Matthew had organized at the Parkside Lounge uh, downtown. We're going to talk about Kendra, but I thought maybe we could start and talk to uh, Matthew about his, his music work. I thought that the segment that evening at the Parkside Lounge was most impressive, your segment. The one that you that you hold, it was there was a lot going on. There was a it wasn't just you. You had a band. You surprised us with other hip hop artists that came in, and he yeah Kendra talk about it because you've seen his yeah. shows. Yeah, no, I was so just shocked. Um, you know, I came from out of town at that time. I was living in California, so I flew in to see him, and I thought I was just gonna you know get another show. You know, Matthew doing his thing. Um, but he took it up another notch. Um, and I know there was a lot put into that before even the show. There were some things that I got to you know, be told about, about how he was practicing with the band for weeks beforehand. And I know he's been trying to find band members. You know, it's really, um, it can be a little tough, you know, trying to find people who can be committed um, to that. So seeing the show, I was blown away. Good energy, a lot of like uh, nested eggs throughout. Um, and I think it it went amazing. So I like that there were nested eggs, people coming in from the back, 
Uh, and it was all so well produced, so well timed. And I just hope you can get back to doing that work again, because clearly, sir, you've got you've got a talent at not just producing music, but producing a show. You know, thank you. I appreciate um, that. And I guess it was really great that Kendra was there to kind of. It's nice to share it with family, so to speak. Right? <laughs> And six. I like surprising Kendra now. I'm not going to tell anything I'm going to do with my music anymore until <laughs> nice. it's about to happen. <laughs> right, right. That's great. Where are you now with your music? I know we're in the middle of this COVID-19 thing. Are you able to produce? I, I am able to work on new things, but not the same way. I'm not performing as much. Uh, it's funny, actually. I, I'm, I just came from one of my cousin's house and... She said, hey, why aren't you on Instagram with your friends like Poetic Boy D right now that are hosting uh, virtual open mics? And I told her, I- I've been quarantining myself from social media since we've been quarantining. Why? Uh, it was too much information at once uh, when everything started happening with the corona virus. Uh, I remember getting the gradual information of where corona was heading to and then after a while, it seems like the only way to get your news was via social media. And it was so much news at once that I just separated myself from it just because I, I, I wanted a, a peace of mind. And I haven't went back because I'm enjoying this peace of mind, but uh, I, I'm getting back into communicating with people that I used to keep in contact with more often since we're getting back into our phases of reopening. I know you put out singles just recently, and I wondered if we can play one right now. Yeah, uh, I actually dropped three singles uh, in February. Yep. Which one would you like to play? I'm going to ask Kendra to choose that one for me. <laughs> well, you know which one I'm going to choose. Uh, I don't know. Stressed and Blessed. No. No. <laughs> Here Is it that goes. the one you wanted, Kendra? <laughs> which one? Stressed Blessed? <laughs> Really? Was That's it? The one? Yes, it is. I just she figured it wouldn't blessed. be the, his first guess. <laughs> no, no. Well, I've, I've, I've got, I've got mind connections. You do, so. you do. Uh, um, so tell us about stressed and blessed, and then we'll play it. A little backstory. On Mondays, I usually go to New York and Poets Cafe to perform at open mics, and because. I've gone there so frequently. There's a group of us that frequent the New Yorican. We have this showcase called the Monday Crew Showcase, pretty much. And it's pretty much to highlight the people that we've come into contact with from performing at the New Yorican. And we do it on my birthday. There was a group of people within the group that released a song. And me and another guy, Jay Morris, who's also on the song Stress Bless, we looked at it. It was like, yo, that's a good song, but... I don't like how they did that behind our backs. So what we did was we did a song behind their backs. Oh, and wow. it's friendly competition. So there yeah, you go. You know, it's, it's all love. But it was like, hey, you know, that was a good song. That was cute. Let's, let's do a little something. And um, last year on Kendra's birthday, Jay Morris, who's the featured artist, he uh, contacted me and we was going to link up. And I was like, hey, me and Kendra's finished hanging out. Maybe I could pick you up from your uh, from where we are at, and you can come to my house, and we'll record it. And that's what we did actually the day after Kendra's birthday last year. We recorded it, a rough draft of the song in my basement. Kind of released it on last year for my birthday with the Money Crew Showcase, just to show people like, hey, the song exists. And then we actually released it to the public on, on all streaming platforms uh, in February. So my inspiration to the song is. Great. A lot of people always talk about too stressed to be blessed. 
I mean, too blessed to be stressed, excuse me. And I kind of like played with that a little bit within the songs. Like, hey, you know, I go through this, but because I go through that, I'm able to be where I'm at today because all that stuff, it makes you stronger. Let's Very hear, nice. Let's hear Stress Blessed uh-huh. with Jay Morris and Dwayne Bishop, lead rappers. Uh, here on Bar Crow Radio. Here we go. This my passion, man. And it's that way. It's been that way since about 17. Be that way till that graves dig. Been that king. What's them slave ships? Ripping out all them pages. Take your step, then retrace it. I'm stressful and stressless. Been pissed off and pissed on. I'm the back and the chest. I'm digital and analog. The original, the classic, the new shit, the remix, the period, the prefix. I'm the shallow side of the deep end. I'm stressed, but I'll never be distressed. If I wasn't so blessed, because I'm blessed, I'm able to get through the rest without getting no rest. Been through the test so much that I forget that the test even exists. Before I exit, I plan to be on the list where only the greatest exist. I'm stressed, but i never been distressed. Man, I never felt so blessed. Put me to the test, but I put them all to the rest. And don't you know you talking to the best, so you don't you forget. I call the shots, don't miss. I call the shots and swish. Hope that you bop and you rockin' it. this. If I not, then I just might open it. It's like, nah, nah. I'm stressed, but i never be distressed. If I wasn't so blessed, because I'm blessed, I'm able to get through the rest without getting no rest. Been through the test so much that I forget that the test even exists. Before I exit, I plan to be on the list. Where only the greatest exist. I'm blessed. Wow. Okay. Thank you very much. That was that was terrific. And we're talking with the artist who created Stress Blessed with uh, Dwayne Bishop, who I know as Matthew Bishop, who worked on this and put it together with Jay Morris. Thank you very much for sharing that. And and we're also talking with Kendra Claiborne. Um, so Kendra, how did you get interested in computer technology? And I have another follow-up question to that. What is the box? <laughs> what we, is we box? Spent what is time, the box? We, like, we read it. I we looked read at the website. It. I went page to page. I couldn't figure out what it was. Oh, so man. tell us about yourself first. So how did you come to be interested in computer technology? Because that's a man's world, isn't it? Is it a man's world kind of? It definitely started that way. Um, there's still a lot of, you know, gender gap there, um, mm-hmm. but somehow I made my way through. Um, I've always been into computers from a, like a really young age. Um, I always remember being like eight years old and just like building websites, um, crashing computers, getting bugs on it, not knowing how to fix it, but my parents will always willingly get me another computer and it'll just be a revolving cycle. <laughs> um, so that's pretty much just how I got into computers. Um, my dad is a IT like technician uh, for Verizon. So I've always been around technology. Um, even my mom, she studied some programming when she was um, in her college or her undergrad as well. Um, so I think it kind of just naturally, I gravitated to it. Um, and I knew going into college, I was gonna definitely do computer science. I knew I just always had an interest to build things. Um, and I think I'm a natural problem solver, which is definitely one of the skills that you need to be a, just to be an engineer. Um, and it's just a great skill to have in general. <laughs> that's great. Um, yeah, that's pretty much how it's. Is that is that how Go you, girl? Is that how you two met? Was it through technology? No. No. <laughs> Are we going to hear the story? Is that what you're leading up to, Al? I, I, I just occurred to me. I didn't know how they met. How did you meet? 
you want me to tell it? Yeah, I mean, go ahead, Kendra. I've been talking so much, you know. Go ahead, you talk. <laughs> yeah, he's he's known he's known as DJ Don't Stop, so we're gonna say stop. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's a throwback. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. yeah, we met when I was uh, we were both still well. I was in high school. I think he was just graduating. Uh, met through a friend, a mutual friend actually. We both did track, um, and it's ironic we never met at any track meets, um, but there was a Sweet 16 that someone on my track team had. Um, and there I saw this handsome young man with a Afro. And I said, oh, that's a nice looking guy. Uh-huh. Um, but I was a little too shy to talk. Um, but we had a one of his best friends um, was a friend of mine as well. And he kind of initiated that initial conversation. And I think from there, we just have been um, talking ever since so wait a minute are you telling me this goes back to high school yeah but yeah. Dwayne were you um were you in I mean Matthew were you in the high school at the time were you, or you had just graduated just graduated high school okay right. okay but but still that counts so high school sweethearts <laughs> yeah pretty yeah. much two different high schools but yep yeah. high school sweethearts <laughs> that's, that's, that's great that's, that's terrific. Nice. I would like to say this too about Kendra from when we originally met she had a plan set out for her next steps after high school and every plan that she had set out she has accomplished and i find that very inspiring from the time we met she was like i'm going to college for computer science i'm going away to college at first she was thinking albany she ended up going to university at buffalo then after that she was like i'm moving to california and she found a job in la that you know, was willing to pay for the move, moved out to LA, got a job. And then she found a better opportunity in San Francisco, went and filed that in San Francisco. She said, I'm going to come back to New York. And now she's back in New York with the great job stuff that she had started off with in California. So, you know, kudos to her for following out her dreams and ambitions from day one. It's a great story of both of you as well. I mean, you stayed in touch and now you're close friends again, I guess, right? No, they're partners. They're... I know. I was being... I know you're being... No, no, but that's an important part, that that friendship, um, I think, has been the foundation, um, you know, for us. I think that's really important and something that's not um, as valued in relationships nowadays. Um, there's a lot of ups and downs when you're in a partnership, um, but I can definitely, you know, Matthew's my best friend at the end of the day. That's so. great. That fantastic. is great. Fantastic. All right. So what is box? What is, box? What is that? So Are you is... thinking in the box? Is that what that is? Or outside the box? Out of the box. So <laughs> Technically, he's out of the box. Okay. You know, brought in one's horizon. Um, but it's just a cloud content management tool, um, just as a, you know, the foundation of it. Um, so it's basically a way, an easy way to be able to access files um, from the cloud, as they say. Um, and being able to share those files with other people. Similar to, I'm not sure if you guys heard of Dropbox. Yeah, oh, yeah sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So funny that, you know, very similar names, just drop that and keep the box. <laughs> no, I, we, use it, we use it all the time. I, I, every, every so maybe day. we should start using Box, Al. I think we should. I it's, think we should. To I don't box know. It's like, <laughs> can't take on another one. Oh, come on. Yeah. So I'm going to do an awkward turn here. Because I wanted to talk to all four of us. All four of us have a conversation about racism in the United States. I've been uh, reading a book called White Fragility, which I'm going to refer to again. 
in which D'Angelo, the writer, argues that basic that basically the United States is a racist country. Now, Matthew is an example of I think of what we're 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 dealing with here, in that we're dealing in we're living in two different worlds. When I asked you for a bio, uh, Matthew, for your biography, you sent me two of them, uh, one quite brief. And then the other one was longer and, and focused on the work as, as a musician. In the first bio, the first words were, Matthew Bishop, black male, 29 years old. Now, if someone asked me to write my bio, I would never write Alan Winson, white man, seven <laughs> summer years old. Maybe you should. It, just never, it would never happen. It would never happen in this country. Well, and to me, in, no, your, it, in your world. No, in, in, in the United States, it would not happen. And so I think there's a basic difference there in how in the world you two live in and the world. And I, I just wanted to explore that a, a, a bit. Um, and Matthew, you said it was all right. Kendra said it was all right. Because I don't, I don't feel it's your job to educate moi, this white man and this white woman. But I think we should have these conversations and I think they're difficult. I think. I mean, well, that's the question. Do you think that it's uh, it's difficult to talk about racism in this country with two old white folks? For me, I don't have a problem with it, just because I don't want to say it in a kind of condescending way, but it doesn't bother me to speak up, and I feel like being a black man in America experiencing the black man world, it, it makes you want to speak up and it's hard not to sometimes. So uh, for me, it, I don't have a problem with it. In fact, I speak sometimes a little too much and uh, not, and I don't say too much in a regret to regard where it's uh, disrespectful, but sometimes like at times where, well, it's hard to explain, I guess. But for me, I like to speak up when I get the platform and right now, this is the platform to speak up, so I would love to speak up on it. And happy Juneteenth. Um, yes. Uh, oh, yes. yes. No, oh, I, I was going to say, ask happy you, Juneteenth what do you say? Because <laughs> I said to my daughter this morning, um, happy Juneteenth. Teenth. Happy Juneteenth. And she said, well, are you supposed to say happy Juneteenth? Is that what you're supposed to say? I said, well, there's it's a celebration. Right. So I said, well, I'll it's ask, happy I'll ask Matthew Day. and Kendra. It's similar. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like saying Happy Independence Day to us. So okay. All right. The way how we have the 4th of July, you say Happy 4th, a Happy Independence Day. This is Happy uh, Abolishment Day, you know. All right. This is so Kendra and Matthew, Happy Juneteenth. Should, well, happy maybe June. Happy Juneteenth to all of us. Right, yeah. exactly. We all no. celebrate yeah, well. Because we're all together in yes. this freaking country. That's right. You know, once 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 we're all free, then we all will be free. If so. one exactly, if one person is oppressed, we're all oppressed. All oppressed, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. And it seems to me in a great one of the things I'm learning, and I've kind of known this, but it's kind of not right in your face, is that white people are suffering in their own way uh, because we just don't know who we are, and not knowing who you are, that's such that's an awful way to live your life. No, knowing, not knowing that you are living in this kind of reality. It's hard to face the reality of being the oppressor. It's hard to face that. And we all are, and we have to do that. But, it's, but that's the only way, that's the only way we're ever going to come to a place where we're just all one people. 
And we're dedicating Barclay Radio. We're going to try to find programs to talk about this in ways that we can talk about it. Um, so each of us were socialized by the place we grew up in, right? So I grew, I was born in Texas. And um, I didn't grow up there, thank God. My family moved away when I was four years old. But I used to go back every year to visit uh, my grandparents, who I loved dearly. A couple of bigots, but I loved them. I didn't know when I was, you know, a little kid. I, but I did know. I saw things. And the town that um, they lived in was a town of, there was probably about 500 you know, inhabitants in the town. It was a one-stoplight kind of town. And within that town, there was a black ghetto of 500 people. And at one point, my family decided, you know, when I was visiting, oh, let's drive by, look at it. And I didn't know how to respond to that as a, a young girl. I didn't get it. But I, I do remember this and having a really clear, visceral response my, my family owned a real estate business. They sold houses. And I was sitting in the outer office while the grown-ups were inside talking about and laughing about a black family that came and tried to buy one of their houses in whatever neighborhood. I don't know. And I, I didn't get it. And I'll never forget how I thought, how mean is that? They're laughing. That's, that's insane. Um. And then I grew up in California, and thank God I met liberal people. I'm not saying, suggesting at all that I'm not, that I'm not guilty of not realizing that I was taking, that, I would be, that I've been living under this white privilege, you know? And I've done and said things that I regret. I once had a, um, a manager at the Marriott. I used, to, I used to work at the Marriott Hotel in, in Manhattan, in, the, in Times Square. And he was, he was the manager on duty. He was the MOD, which is a pretty high-level position. And he was a, a black man. And he would come in and just chat with me, you know, at the bar. I was in the bar in the kitchen. I was a bartender, but it was in the kitchen in the restaurant. And he would come and get a soda and just, you know, chat. And it was very friendly. And I, was, I liked him a lot. And then one day he came by and said, oh, I saw you on the subway. And I said to him immediately, I said, oh, I wouldn't have said anything to you. Because that was my fear of black men. That was that bullshit fear. It just bursted out of me. And later on, I thought about it, and I went over to him, and I apologized. And ever since then, I looked around. I look around when I'm on the subway, and I just see working people. I just pe- see people going to work, just normal, everyday people, black, white, something in between, you know. Yeah, but that's who I am. And that's who I have to recognize. I did um, whiteness studies when I was uh, in my um, studying for my um, my uh, teacher, my master's in, in education, and my di- dissertation was in whiteness studies. So years ago, I, I read about you know these things, and it's it's very important that we all have these conversations. And I'm sorry I went on so long, Alan, but I wanted you to know who I am. <laughs> As I ask, as we ask you these questions, and Alan grew up in Florida. He grew up in a a neighbor, a white neighborhood, segregated South. Segregated South. But Alan grew up with also prejudice too against him as a Jewish man. Um, they did come out on their sidewalk and see a, a, a swastika, you know, painted on the sidewalk. 
um, Matthew. Yeah, it was, it was mm-hmm. a segregated South. It was. Yeah. 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 And Matthew, you grew, up, you grew up in Brooklyn, and Kendra, you grew up in Queens. What were your neighborhoods like, and, and who were the people who raised you? And Kendra, why don't you go first? Okay. Um, so my neighborhood is predominantly Black, um, a lot of Caribbeans, um, a lot of Haitians. So um, at the time, you know, a lot of people immigrated, immigrated from the islands, um, and all middle class, uh, doing very well. Um, I actually kind of felt sheltered growing up. There's not a lot of violence, a lot of not a lot of crime. I don't see homelessness in my neighborhood, uh, but I was very aware that it was prevalent um, and it was a way of life in New York City. Given that, like my grandparents, they lived in Harlem, so growing up, you know, I had our nice picket little friends home in Queens, but I would go to Harlem and see a whole totally different way of life. People who looked like me, but were in different circumstances. In my neighborhood, you know, even though it is predominantly black. We have a Jewish neighborhood at the very end. Um, so it was kind of like not a clash of, you know, two races, but always seeing, you know, this other race, but not really interacting, but still living in harmony. To my to my understanding, I'm sure there were things that have happened throughout the time um, that I just wasn't aware of. Quite frankly, growing up, I felt I was always in a really safe neighborhood. Um, and my parents cautioned me of, you know, hey, if you take the train, be, you know, don't be oblivious. Um, oh, you're going to Brooklyn. All right. You may not want to go there or, you know, you may want to be conscious when you're walking around. Um, so my parents raised me to be um, aware. Um, my par- my mom is from Brooklyn. My dad is from Harlem. They're New Yorkers. They, they know, you know, what is outside of our little home. Um, so they always, you know, raised me to be very aware, um, but to be um, but to also be conscious, you know, of what's going on. Mm-hmm. What about you, yeah. Matthew? So, um, yeah, born and raised Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I'm in East New York, Brooklyn. Some people call it the hood, depending on, you know, who you ask. It's To me, it's just home. But I, because I, well, I'll say this. Going to school as a child, it was mostly in the neighborhood, and my only real encounter as a youth with white people in my daily life was teachers uh, until I got to third grade. And that's when I started going to private school. And it was only, it was predominantly black teachers that I was dealing with then. And then I went to a Catholic high school in East Flatbush, Brooklyn. And that's when I had some Spanish teachers and some black, uh, Hispanic teachers, excuse me, uh, and you know, black teachers. And then I really got more involved with cultures outside of mine in college, especially like, it was like a crash course. It was like, as soon as I was in freshman year in college, it was like, bang, this is America. Wake up, Matthew. And and I was woken up real quick with it. Um, Can you give us an example of being woke up? Um, that the world's not as dark as I thought it was, I guess. Uh, I, I had a picture because of my neighborhood and what I knew of New York. I expected New York to look kind of like my neighborhood. It was like, yeah, it's mostly black Spanish people. And you'll see a white person every now and then. <laughs> but uh, after I got more involved with leaving outside of my neighborhood, that changed pretty dramatically, especially, you know, I know Brooklyn 
from my youth for the parts that I've been around, which was East New York, Canarsie, East Flatbush, which are all predominantly black and Spanish neighborhoods. Then I went to college in downtown Brooklyn originally. It was City Tech. And being that it was so close to Manhattan, I used to go to Manhattan pretty often then. Like, I used to go to Manhattan only for track meets when I was in high school. Uh, now I'm going to Manhattan to hang out with friends. You know, like some of my friends are like, hey, we're going to Canal Street to do something. So, you know, what's Canal Street and you like, you know, integrating with the Chinese and the white people that are there in Canal Street. And then you like move further up into Manhattan and then when you get to Midtown Manhattan, like with John Jay, it's like a complete different story compared to East New York, Brooklyn. In fact, what's funny is when I was in college, actually, and I used to tell people where I live, they used to be like, oh, really? You feel safe out there? Like, oh, wow. it was a real common theme. Wow. In fact, one of my good friends in college, he used to say he would never go by my house because he had a real bad experience uh, coming off the three train at New Lots Avenue, which is the stop that I get off to come home. And don't get me wrong. I, I've experienced it myself, too, growing up. Like, I, I've been beat up. I've been jumped on the trains. Uh, you know, I got into fights in parks and stuff like that. But it's still home. So to me, it doesn't feel like this frowned upon place. But depending on who you ask in New York City, like East New York, mm, we're in East New York because East New York doesn't have like the best rep- uh, the best reputation on the block. Yeah. And that, that reputation would apply to both uh, white people and black people? Honestly, if, if you're white in East New York, they will think you're a cop. Like that, that, that's I, like I always think that honestly. Whenever I see uh, white people in East New York, I'm like, oh, must be a cop or here for or or somebody that owns land, you know, uh, because you don't see it too often in this area. There, there are white people. I, like I have a white neighbor that lives across the street, but out of probably my sixty neighbors, the only white person that I could think of in the immediate blocks here uh, in this area. So, yeah, that was pretty much me growing up, I guess. Let's talk a bit about um, your work experience. I thought maybe we can start with Kendra because I know you're active at Box. What is the race, racial temperature? Is it pretty open? Is it, um, or do you see any of this um, racism that we're talking about? Even if it's not overt, just underneath. Yeah, um, I will actually say Box has been my best experience um, in terms of uh, open tech community. Um, you know, tech definitely has the stigma of, you know, there's not many Black people. Um, a lot of times it's hard to um, level up, you know, moving up to manager and, um, you know, eventually executive level. Um, but Box is actually very open. Um, and even during this time, they've been pretty active um, with listening to the black community, not just taking immediate action where we've seen a lot of corporations and you know these tech um, companies just hitting out verbiage to, to say that they're standing with um, in solidarity and you know that's all nice and whatnot, but you know, to be quite frankly, we could have been doing that beforehand. We it didn't sound, have to wait until what we're seeing. It sounds right like now. an advertisement almost. Yeah, exactly. Um, and what I like that Box has done is they've taken the time to listen. Um, they asked us, you know, is there anything that you guys need um, to be able to help you continue to function in the work environment during this time? 
you know, hey, do you guys need a day off? You know, just speak up if that's something that you need to do. Um, and I think even before this situation, uh, Fox has been pretty open. Um, their numbers are, um, quite frankly, still bad. <laughs> um, you know, we, we've had a lot of Black um, employees leave um, over the past year that I've been there. The number of people in executive levels, it's non-existent. Um, we did just recently have one of our Black females get promoted to the chief um, diversity and inclusion officer, you know, which is great. She's done an amazing job. This could have been done beforehand. And I, I do believe they can work on their numbers. What, 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 what do you think is the basis for, for this inability for black, work, black techies to work, work their ways up? Clearly, you're a talented person. But do you feel maybe that your your movement up the ladder is is how? I mean, when you're a woman too, that's yeah. got to yeah. get There's into it. Kind of like barriers already put there for me. I think a lot of times it comes to, like you said, it's not the ability, um, but these kind of stigmas that we have um, on us, kind of walking into the door already. They don't see us as um, capable of having these, you know, high positions. Who has the power to make the decisions? Who, who's a, who's making question. the decisions? For me, that would be my manager. So mm-hmm. having an advocate. And a lot of times we don't have advocates. Um, and your manager office. is white or black? My manager is actually Asian. Asian, um, yeah. yeah. he's part of the API, so that Asian Pacific um, Islander community. Um, and he's actually, you know, very, um, very, av- he's an advocate for us. Um, but I, I can give an example in my previous company that I worked at, um, which was in the consulting environment. Um, and I can certainly say there are not many um, people in high positions in consulting. Um, I think it's just the nature of that environment. There are times where people don't feel comfortable even trying to get up to a manager position because they don't see people like themselves there. Um, a lot of times, you know, when we go into corporations, there's a lot of there's people of high positions who are white. Asian, especially in IT, Indian, and when you don't see people like yourself, it kind of can be um, an, an, an inhibitor. You know, it doesn't allow you to be able to feel like you can level up because right. um, you don't have an example. If you were to talk to management, and I guess you do because you're part of um, organizations at Box that look at racial disparities and all, but if you were to talk to the white management and say, and ask them if they're racist or if they are making racial decisions that are not the best for the company, but that are racial, would they say, sure, we are, and we're working on it? Or would they say, no, we're colorblind? <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping the former. Um, and a somewhat of a similar question like that was actually asked at our, um, during one of our company um, lunches. Um, so we have like daily Friday lunches and someone actually asked, you know, how is Box um, addressing corporations who are known to be racist or have racist rhetoric who are Box customers? How are we approaching, you know, doing business with these companies? And I will say it wasn't in a straight answer, um, but our um, C- CEO, he did respond by saying, you know, we are aware in situations of that, we just have to be able to kind of see through that margin and be able to see if there's a way that we can come to a compromise. So there wasn't a direct answer. It wasn't a straight, no, we're not going to work with them. But I think they're, they're learning and trying to navigate um, this, 
this environment at the moment. Well, I wonder if there's any investigation of this mindset that this the whole basis of these decisions that are made. I mean, if you approach it just from a policy stance, you're not really looking at the at the basic problem of racism in this country. And I mean, that's the question that I want to ask is, can we ever get to that place where we can recognize our basic, you know, feelings that we just don't look at? Our basic prejudices. Our basic prejudices that we're, we're, we're socialized. That we're acting to. on. Yeah. When we're, when we're in upper management and we're making decisions about who we're going to promote. Yeah. Yeah. Ma- yeah. Matthew, uh, you work in IT also. Do you see any of these machinations where you work? Oh, yes, I do. First and foremost, I would like to say this because, you know, Kendra, as a black woman in tech, I see it very often where a black woman in tech dealing with customer service gets disrespected over and over again. Mm. I even remember when I first got to my job uh, and a customer was trying to ask for my help, which I was surprised at just because I was a black man. But then I saw who was helping them out previously was a black woman and they just didn't feel comfortable working with a woman. I don't know if it was the black part that made a difference, but she said that she wasn't comfortable working with a woman. And I'm thinking to myself, that's crazy because that woman trained me to do the job. So how could you not feel comfortable working with her? (laughs) You know, Uh, so I definitely see that in uh, my field of work. And another thing that I do see when it comes to uh, race at my job is if I see one of my white colleagues are trying to do the same thing that I'm trying to do, they're known as a go-getter. Like you see, he sees something he wants, he goes and gets it. If I try to do that, I've been labeled as ungrateful I've been, you know, labeled as, oh, somebody that's unappreciative because it's like, well, you got this already. You just, we just gave you this. What are you talking about? You want to do that now? It's like, well, because this is what I want to do. I'm not trying to settle here. So in other words, Matthew, you don't know your place. I don't know my place. That's what it oh, is, honestly. God. I don't know my place. And uh, I have high expectations for myself as well. So those two go yeah, kind of against each other. The, the word yeah. that comes America. to me is uppity. Yes, Pretty much. <laughs> Even when with going with to John Jay, based on all of the police drama and court drama that I've had, I, I feel like I am uppity in somebody else's eyes. I, I, I remember going to a courtroom one day uh, to fight uh, a ticket where I was told I was running a light around the corner from my house, actually. And they pulled me over. I didn't really get pulled over. I parked in front of my house. And then the cop pulled up to the side of the car and he was like, hey, uh, you didn't see that light that you ran? And I was like, I, I didn't run any light. I'm coming here green. from Popeye's <laughs> to my house, right? Talking about Popeye's. You know, I was actually coming from Popeye's. There you go. Uh, yep. <laughs> and uh, he was like, uh, no, no, that's not the case. So let me get your license, registration, proof of insurance. Took my information, uh, gave me the ticket, you know, gave me the whole spiel of if you want to fight the case do it, whatever. And I did. I, I fought the case. Due to the amount of tickets that people were fighting, I didn't get to s- go into a courtroom So two years after that case. Wow. And when I got to the courtroom, the judge did not like me from, I think when she saw me, I felt it. <sighs> I felt it. And the way how she treated every case before mine, 
appear to be just. The way how she dealt with me, I felt was not only unjust, but borderline disgusting. Uh, the police wow. officer, you know, when we was given our briefs on what happened, he didn't know the type of car I was driving. He didn't have the color right. I don't think he even had the direction I was driving correct. You know, he thought I was driving an SUV, sedan. He couldn't pick between the two. And he was never questioned about what he was saying. Then when the judge asked me to give my part and I started speaking, she would interrupt me and say, well, the officer said that. And I said, yeah, I heard him say that, but this is how I recount what went, went on. And then I'll speak some more. And she was like, oh, but the officer said that. And I'm like, yeah, he said oh that, but God. he also changed it and said the same thing that I'm saying right now. And then I'll continue my story and then she would do it again. And then at that point, because I'm uppity, I said, I'm sorry, judge, but it appears that you don't want to hear my part of the story. Because when an officer made his mistakes, there was not once that you corrected him. When I was saying my story, I was precise and consistent during the entire time. And you did nothing besides cut me off while I was speaking. And then she said, continue. Mm. So I did continue. And then when I was finished, she said, are you done? Mm. I said, I'm done. And then she just went off to say what she had to say, you know, due to the amount of evidence that we found in this court, I find you guilty. You have to make sure that this and all this stuff, these are points that you'll be doing. You have to pay the court minimum this and that and enjoy your sedate. And it was, it it really felt dismissive. And the reason why I felt like it was an uppity thing, honestly, uh, was because I went, I dressed appropriate. I spoke articulate. And the other black people that I saw there weren't like dressed in the same fashion as I was. They, they, you know, they was wearing jeans, baggy clothes, you know, what, what people would, you know, consider hood attire more or less. And, and I've seen how they presented themselves and it was what I would consider unprofessional. Mm-hmm. You know, if anybody was to present themselves like that, black, white, or indifferent, it would have been unprofessional. And the way how I went was very professional. And I felt that was professional in any regard. How I was treated felt very different. It felt very unprofessional. Yeah. yeah. And, and, I, and I feel like I've seen that, you know, pretty often. It sounds like you have to deal with that kind of systemic, that kind of in your face, always, wherever you go, every day. Honestly, it, it really feels like that. Especially, I remember actually hearing somebody saying, I'm glad that we was able to quarantine so I don't have to deal with racism outside of my house. I read that. I just I referred to that in our last podcast to yeah. Becky. Yeah. yeah. It was a black man who said that he's he feels more comfortable with his skin. So and he feels more healthy because he doesn't have to fade racism every day. You're right. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Also to what you were saying earlier, Rebecca, and I and I thought I I'm real the 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 thing that makes me feel good about doing things like this is hearing people say the experiences that they went through and and showing acceptance to what they did like they're acknowledging hey this happened and i understand this but because of that i was able to grow because that's a part of growth the acknowledgement of ignorance begins knowledge so just the fact that you were able to go through something like that and then able to reflect and then grow from it. I wish we could see more of that in general. Thank you. And of course, in race, definitely. But it's a long way to go still. Generally, 
I wish that people had the opportunity to like just look in the mirror and just say, hey, is this right? And then move forward. Like, would you say Be- that to a white kid that you saw? <laughs> right. Would you say that to? Would you say that to a? Yeah. Yeah. Just. So I've, I've been I've been reading this book, White Fragility, um, and the subtitle is Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. Um, this this conversation, I I felt it hasn't been hard, but I, there is an awkwardness to it. Um, it's painful, I think, on both sides. On really. both sides, which is why I asked your permission. Can we talk about this? Um, because I didn't feel like I could just say, "Well, we're going to talk about it," because I don't have that power. Um, you know, I know a lot of white people think they have the power to do whatever they want to do, like this judge. Um, but I want to congratulate Robin DiAngelo, who wrote this book. It seems clear to me that the United States of America has been and can, can, continues to be a racist country uh, from its beginning, from before its beginning. And the question is, how do we see the racial realities in the world we live in? How do we see it and how do we, and it's just what you were saying, Matthew, how do we recognize it that it's in us? And it's like, I, I could tell stories about how it's in me. I mean, Matthew, I love you. I've known you for so long, uh, but... You know, I have knee-jerk responses just like Becky does, and I, I'm recognizing it. I'm looking at myself and saying, oh, do you know what you just thought? And I go, yeah, yeah. Go on, Kendra. Do you feel like it's a very unconscious thought? Totally. It's like that. Yeah. yeah. It's like you don't even realize you're saying it until after it it's immediate. Out. It's a feeling. When I, when I was a kid and I drove, and we drove past the, the, um, the ghetto in this tiny, tiny town, I saw, you know, people without shoes. I saw people, you know, they had the clothes that they could afford, but it wasn't as nice as my clothes. And I judged them. I remember even as a child judging them. And as an adult, I look back on that. And I, I can't judge me as a child, but I can, but I can judge the society that I lived in that created that. Yeah. That, we, we that swim, lack of understanding. We swim in a white ocean. <laughs> and yeah. um, when you swim in it, you know, you don't really see it because it's all, it's all around you. Yeah. And you, you see it. You two see it because you have faced you the consequences it. of it. Yeah. A white person, we're just, you know, it's just, and our, I mean, we, we live in a white neighborhood. We're like retarded. Yeah, like we're basically. Tarted. We need to be educated. No, nah, not at all. No, I mean, no, it no. Sounds... It's true. It's true. It's but true. Like that environment you grew up in, I think that to me is kind of a lot of the basis of it. Obviously, there's a historical aspect to that, and that's been kind of you know yeah. almost drilled into um, a lot of people's psyche. Because mind you, as a human being, I judge. You know, I see something that I disagree with. That's not how I would go about it. I have a different thought process. I think it's a natural thing to judge, but definitely racism, the mindset of, you know, discrimination, I believe it's very much a taught, um, you know, a taught thing. Yep. Um, and I think it's just been something that's been passed down in generation and generation. And people who have um, benefited from it kind of just naturally have gone on with it. They haven't had the time to face, you know, the implications of it for them, you know, how has what you're doing to other people um, implicated you, you know, the oppressor does not 
it kind of like what you guys were saying, coming to the mirror, looking in and, you know, seeing the reality of things. Um, there's a lot of guilt there. Um, a lot of people don't feel comfortable um, admitting to guilt. Um, and I think there's a, a lot of that playing a role too um, in it. And I, I believe a lot of people are coming to terms with, you know, trying to put themselves in other people's shoes and you will never truly understand um, a black person's plight because you are not black. No. But I think we all have the basic ability to see, to comprehend, to be able to hear someone's story and empathize with that. We need to humanize um, and each respect other. It. Respect yeah. it. Respect it. Respect yeah. that story. Definitely, yeah. yeah. And we got. I, I, and I'll say this too: even the way how history is taught, I feel like is very racist. Um, Absolutely. For example, with as we were saying, even before like America, like Christopher Columbus discovering America and we hold him to such a high regard for discovering this place where people already were living and thriving. And we call this, Oh, this is the discovery of America. And we celebrate it. And we celebrate as though people weren't here and living in America. Like our American history starts with Christopher Columbus, you know? And, and I think that's a real, whitewashed way of looking at our history yes honestly yes uh and and honestly as well i would say for me personally growing up the way how i felt history was taught to me was very one-sided like you know you get a little bit of the slavery talk and then how you know we were out of slavery and then that's it and then all of a sudden this guy named Martin Luther king comes along and then he says oh we should all love each other then he gets killed and there was this guy named Malcolm X, but he, oh, don't don't pay attention to what he's saying because he was an anarchist. He was trying to break the system down and all this different stuff. In fact, uh, I remember reflecting in my thoughts not too long ago, thinking of how much I used to idolize Martin Luther King, but look down upon Malcolm X. Wow, yeah. Until I started taught, going yeah. through America as a black male adult. And I don't despise Martin Luther King, but I despise the way how I used to view him in my mind compared to Malcolm X. Because now when I look at Malcolm X's speeches and I hear them, those resonate with me to a whole different regard. Like, it's like, yes, like, I understand, you know, turn the other cheek with the Martin Luther King, but I understand the stop slapping me in the face by Malcolm X. (laughs) Because that's what I felt like. It, it's like, turn the other cheek when somebody slaps you. But don't slap me in the face because I might have to slap you back. Like, And that's how I feel Malcolm X's speeches were kind of going. And because of that, it's like, whoa, are you antagonizing us? It's like, no, I'm not. I'm trying to tell you stop slapping me so I don't have to feel inclined to slap you back. It's, it's pretty much mutual respect. There you go. And for some weird reason, that's seen as threatening. Respect is seen as threatening in America, I feel like. Right. I want to ask you guys a question, Um, you know, maybe from your perspective, you know, when you were growing up, what was threatening about, you know, like a black male to you? What was it? Was it the, yeah, just what was threatening? Because I, I, that's a question I'm, I've always been interested to ask from, you know. You know, you're talking about something that's logical and there's no logic to it. Black men always carried knives. Yeah. You know, they're always drugged up. They're they yeah, they probably use drugs. And they're all you know, oversexed and um yeah, you I don't want to these are all in quotes, right? This is if I'm walking this... down the street and I'm in a black neighborhood, 
I'm going to be attacked because yeah. I'm a white woman. Um, I'm not telling you that these angry. Are, this is not they hate us. Not based right. on any reality. I mean, it's all it's it's. It was taught. There's no logic to it. It was ingrained. There's no logic. Don't go. Don't go in those neighborhoods. Right. I would say we this. Taught. If anything, history has proven us quite the opposite. I think so. I think. I mean, so. stay out of the black neighborhood, but if you go jog in the white neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. watch out. Yeah, yeah exactly. that goes. Yeah. Exactly. Listen, we're gonna. I mean, yeah. we, we're, we're we're gonna we, have to have to have this kind we're of conversation. We're gonna continue this again. conversation with you, with others, um, because my God, we the white people need to start to talk about racism and about their own complicity in it. Even good white people, you know, the people who don't think they're racist, we all are implicit. We are yeah. complicit in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we and we need to be made, made aware of it. So I thank, we want to thank you, uh, Matthew Bishop, stage name Dwayne Bishop, and Kendra Claiborne for joining us on Barcrawl Radio. And I would like to thank you for the opportunity to speak, Dr. Professor and Rebecca. <laughs> thank you very much. I really appreciate this platform, and I'm so happy to see that you're continuing something that we started. Thank you. And Kendra, it was great meeting you. You really brought so much to this conversation, and I hope that we get to have more conversations with you. Matthew, you're a lucky guy. (laughs) Thank you. I think so, too. There you go. Both Alan and Rebecca, this is great. Um, I think it's really important to be able to use our voices. So thank you for opening up your voice. All of us. All of us. Keep opening up our voices. Okay. We have been talking with two young Americans, a handsome couple, both working in the IT field, about racism in this country. Alan and I feel that this sort of conversation on racism and white supremacy, what it is, how it is practiced and manifest, needs to be expanded. We are going to find opportunities to continue looking at this basic issue that defines who we are and determines whether we will ever be a moral society. This is Bar Crawl Radio. Sorely missing that we are not recording in our favorite bars on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and yearning for the moment when we are. Tell us what you think of our programming at barcrowradio at gmail.com. Let's have a double date sometime at a bar. There we go. Let's do it. (laughs) All right. And now the Zoom wave. The Zoom wave. Yeah. (laughs) Bye-bye, everybody.